Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. And welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. This is Vinny and I'm here with Rob and uh, we are here with another fun show. We should actually have a, a a Patreon subscribing thing that you get in on our live podcast recordings, and you can listen to the pre-show banter that you and I have. Because <laughs> I think that's a show worth in, worth itself. No one knows except for you and me how awesome that is. But yeah, it's great conversations. <laughs> so We've been going wanna... for like forty five minutes. And <laughs> it's supposed like... to start this a while ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's that's the good stuff. So hey, I uh, got an an interesting um, couple shows that we're going to have on. So one of the things that we're trying to do as we're figuring out this podcast is. To to if we're having guests on uh, doing a show either before or after them to maybe uh, tie up loose ends or introduce an idea or discuss something a little further, because when we have guests on uh, it's not necessarily, a, you know, grilling them on their views or anything. It's figuring out, Hey, what's going on. What about this book that you wrote or, or what is it that you're doing in terms of contributions, uh, you know, to the church and, and to the world. Uh, so this is why we do these kind of shows. And so today's show, is actually going to introduce a really exciting guest that we're going to have on uh, in our next episode, uh, David Crump. And, and he's specifically in, in this show is going to talk about the issue of uh, uh, Zionism and, and that sort of thing. All these big words that, you know, isms, there was always fun to, to find, but um, I don't know. How, how should we start off the show, Rob? Why, why do you want to talk about this? Why is this something that's near and dear to your heart? Yeah, well, a couple of things. Number one, typically what we've been doing is interviewing the guests and then having an episode that follows up where we kind of frame the conversation, put some more thoughts of our own in, into the conversation there. But this conversation is so difficult and, it, and there's so many nuances there and it's so fragile that we thought, let's have an episode first, kind of introducing the episode, introducing David. Uh, and David's going to have some strong opinions. And we're going to have some guests probably in the future after as well that kind of represent the other side of the uh, of the equation. So we want to have today's discussion to frame the conversation before we interview David uh, in our next episode. Now, we want to remind everyone that, listen, our goal here and the tagline for Determined Truth is to challenge the church to be the church. And we want to help you understand the scriptures and wrestle with the scriptures and what does it mean to follow Jesus in, in the modern world. And we're not going to get into politics and, and advocacy all the time, but the reality is that our understanding of scriptures affect our politics, right? So we want to, we want to bring some of those issues up. And, and one of the most significant issues is the issue of, of Christian Zionism. And so we want to define what that means and what that is and kind of our take on it or my take on it as well. But the fact is that it's not a simple issue. And David's going to say that it is a simple issue. I just don't agree with him. I think it is a complex issue. So we want to frame that conversation tonight today <laughs> yeah yeah whenever you might be listening to it that's right <laughs> you, you you know you said that david's view of this is simple um and you would argue that it's not simple it's it's complex and you know you could probably argue either way for why it might be simple right. or not um but uh, i know that this is something that you talk about in your book um these brothers of mine so this came out in what 2015 is that about the time when that book came out 2015 correct 15 yeah um and so you know, that's something that, you know, we'll probably reference a few times and we would definitely, I would definitely encourage you if you're a listener, pick that up. It's a little book. It's not deep and it's, uh, or it's not, it's not dense, uh, but it definitely gives a great perspective, maybe even an introduction to this uh, topic from a, a, a variety of perspectives. But before we talk the details, um, you know, about the subject itself, 
like, what's your story? How did you get involved in this? Why is it personal for you? Um, you know, those sorts of things. Very good. Yeah. It became personal for me because I had an experience in which I realized that the injustices that were happening in the land, and we're going to get into them a little bit, were happening in large part because of people like me. And this experience just overwhelmed me. And I, be, I, I began to weep and I began to repent right at that moment. So as a child, as a, as a young person in the church, I grew up uh, kind of with this theological conviction known as Christian Zionism. Uh, Did you Christian, know it as Christian Zionism? Is that the term you assigned to it? No, I, no, no, I probably didn't think of it in, the, in, in those contexts. It's just, I, I guess you think of it as like a, a pro-Israel uh, sentiment. Theologically, and I'm just, I'm just asking that because there's many people who might, they might not know the term, but they might hold to the view. So yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so Christian Zionism is, and there's, it's different than Zionism. So Zionism in general is the belief that the Jewish people have a right to the historic land. And it's a movement for them to get back to that land and have their own national identity and political civil identity. Christian Zionism uh, is a political movement supported mostly by American Protestants. What's interesting is that when Zionism got started, the people that were supporting Israel and their cause were actually what we might call the liberals, hmm. because the liberals saw this as a, as a justice issue. The Jewish people are being oppressed throughout Europe, and then obviously the Holocaust happens and it became a total uh, justice issue. And so the liberal churches, what we might call liberal churches, more uh, social gospel churches, saw this as a justice issue. And they were largely in support of the movement of Zionism to get the Jewish people a land of their own where they can have a country and a nation of their own. But it's, a, so again, it's a political movement then supported by American Protestants and, and, and U.S. American evangelicals specifically now. The evangelicals came on board after 1948 because they thought, oh, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Mm-hmm. And, and they saw this as, as, a, as a Bible issue. And the idea is that it, that it asserts that God is exclusively on Israel's side. Now, Israel, and that's one of the problems in conversations like this, has to be defined. And they define Israel as the ethnic physical descendants of Abraham, i.e. what we call the, 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 Jewish, the Jewish people. So they believe that, that God is exclusively on Israel's side, the Jewish people's side, and that God's blessings then flow to Christians and even to nations like America, when they demonstrate an exclusive and unquestioning support of Israel politically and economically. So it's kind of, and, and there's all kinds of nuances even, even within that. And obviously that derives from Genesis 12, verse three, where God tells Abraham, those who bless you, I'll bless. And those who curse you, I, I will curse. And so they would take the you as being any descent of Israel or of Abraham, even to the point of, of modern day Jewish folks. That's correct. And, and I deal with that question in my book, These Brothers of Mine, and a lot to be said there, but I'll, we'll, we'll hold it for another time. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Cause even, even right off the bat, you, the way you preface the, your own uh, experience was you experienced injustice and that changed your, you know, that, that helped in starting to change your mind. What you're not saying is uh, your theology is determined by pragmatism. You actually, and I, just because I know you and I've read your book and we've had conversations over the years, your theologic, your theological conviction is that, no, this is not what the Bible teaches, that right. Genesis 12 ought to be inter, uh, you know, understood as the you is not modern day descendants of Israel. 
Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's not, we're not going to get into that today, but you know, just so for our listeners to not leave them with a huge tease. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. Th- that was actually a really good uh, understanding of the difference between Zionism, Christian Zionism. I didn't even know that there was a, you know, the, the liberal church uh, was seeing that as a justice issue, you know, back then. So that, that's really good information. Um, so you started then having a shift um, when did this happen? Cause you're a guy just, you know, looking at your own background, you've been a Christian your whole life. You've shared how you grew up, uh, you know, in, in maybe more fundamentalist, uh, camps in the seventies mm-hmm. and eighties, you know, you, you go to, uh, you know, you first do your masters, uh, in a, in a theological emphasis, and then you go on to a PhD. Did, did you have this, uh, you know, epiphany moment pre PhD, post PhD? How did that work? So theologically it was certainly pre PhD. Yes. As I began teaching, I was teaching at a Christian college and, and high schools as well, and studying years earlier in the early 90s, even, I began realizing, okay, theologically, this is not what Christian, the, the theological idea of Christian Zionism that says that God exclusively favors the Jewish people. I began realizing, no, that's not what I think the New Testament says. The New Testament says that those who, uh, my brothers, my sisters, and my mother are those who do the will of my father who is in heaven. I, I kind of look back ironically because I grew up in a church that's you know, saying the song, Father Abraham mm-hmm. yeah, had yeah. many sons and yep. I am one of them. And so are you. Yes. There's your answer. So wow. let's all praise the Lord. So let's all, <laughs> right. The irony is, is that they actually didn't believe that. They believe that the children of the father of Abraham are the Jewish people. Interesting. And yet we're singing the song that I am one of Abraham's offspring, which I think is obviously what Romans four and mm-hmm. many other passages are, are, are about. So theologically, as I began to understand the new Testament, I began to realize, okay, no, no, no. This is fulfilled in Jesus as I argue in my book, and you can read it for more detail, and through Jesus, obviously, through the coming of the Spirit, it's the in the church, you know, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 9, or 4 through 9 was a, an important passage for me, that you are a chosen race, you are a holy nation, mm-hmm. you are people belonging to God. Oh, that's us. So I theologically had, had, had migrated away from that. But, but politically and ideologically and all that, I didn't know anything more. I just knew what I was raised to believe that the Jews were the, were the good people and the Palestinians were the bad people. And I really didn't even know what a Palestinian was. Mm-hmm. That migration began to happen in 2003. Uh, during that time, I was working on my PhD and I had the opportunity to uh, go to the land and take a, a course through Jerusalem University College. It was a great opportunity for me to study the land and study the issues in the Bible and the theology from an academic perspective and see it wasn't a church group. It wasn't this, you know, this church, let's go stop here and pray here. And then, you know, wait for Margaret to get out of the bathroom before getting the bus and go to the next site. You know, it was, it was an academic <laughs> setting. Sorry, Margaret, yeah. I didn't mean to make fun of you. <laughs> and during that time, uh, we went, uh, we took an excursion over to Jordan. And on the way back from Jordan, I'll keep the story short. On the way back from Jordan, we stopped at the Allenby Crossing. And the Allenby Crossing, I now know, is the only crossing where Palestinians are allowed to go from Jordan back into the Palestinian territories. Hmm. And when you cross the border, you're in the Palestinian territories, often called the West Bank. And so the West Bank is this Palestinian land uh, that's theirs from the United Nations. Everyone everyone agrees this is Palestinian. So they cross here. But I saw women and children sitting there. And and somebody said, hey, these women and children have been there all day. And we got there at three o'clock. And the professor said, we got to hurry because the, the crossing closes at five o'clock. I'm like, okay. And it took us about an hour and 45 minutes to get across. So we didn't get across quickly, but I noticed the women and children were still there. 
And I was told if they don't get across by five o'clock, they have to go back home. And there's no home is like a long journey from back to Jordan, you know, to Amman or wherever they were at from, from the Salaby cross. I just thought that's just not fair. Why I'm getting across because I'm a white, I'm an American, I got a US passport, but these people can't even get to their own country, their own land, territory, whatever you want to call it. And it just didn't seem right. Then, Wait, so just just to yeah. clarify, they were they were literally trying to get, just go home. Is they were just trying to go home. Okay. To go back into their own. To, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like uh, saying they they were in Canada and they lived in Washington State and they wanted to mm-hmm. go back to Washington to, to Seattle and they were crossing the border to get back into Seattle and they were detained there and they weren't allowed to, they weren't allowed back in wow. by their own right. Yeah, because it's because it's Israel who controls the checkpoint. Even though the checkpoint is in Jordan and Palestinian territories border, and, and there's there's reasons for that, and and let me touch on it now. Israel has legitimate security needs, mm-hmm. and if you look at the geography of the land, so in 1947, 1948, the United Nations kind of divided up this land, and the land was given a large percentage of it was given to the well, the, the new state of Israel, mm-hmm. and the Palestinians were given the Gaza Strip and the what's called the West Bank. If you look at a map and you, and you notice the terrain, the West Bank is the highland. It's, it's the hill countries of Judea and Samaria as, as it goes. Well, at one point, the state of Israel is about, I think it's like seven or eight miles uh, wide from, from the Mediterranean to the West Bank. It's a real narrow strip and it's all lowland. So the reality is if Iran's going to fly some fighter bombers in to bomb Israel, the, they have no way of knowing unless they have control of the highland. Mm-hmm. So in 1967, when Israel you know, kind of had this preemptive strike on the West Bank and they gained control of the West Bank and they have not given back that control of the West Bank. So they consider they're still the occupying force of the West Bank. And one of the reasons is we can't give it back because we need to control the highlands for military purposes. And so they control the border crossing because they're the occupying force to say, we're going to make sure we know who's coming in and who's not coming in even though you're only going into the West Bank because they want to, so, so it's control. And so there's a legitimacy there, but there's also, wait a second, this is also not your land. This is, this is not, it's not yours. So there's, there's a problem there. So okay. uh, the second thing that, that I noticed was that this, 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 I sat on the bus and we went to, we went to Bethlehem uh, on this trip in 2003 and we saw the site and the professor stops the bus in front of Bethlehem Bible College. And he says, this is an evangelical Bible college and wonderful things for, 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 for the kingdom of God. And I'm thinking, I didn't know that there were Christians here. And this is just my naivete. Sorry. I didn't, I didn't know that any of the Palestinians were Christians. I thought that when Islam came in in the seventh century, the six, mm-hmm. 630s, and they took control of this region, that they, they either killed all the Christians and Jews or they forced them to leave. They either forced, they either forced converted them, killed them, or forced them to leave. Mm-hmm. And that everybody that was left was was. Muslim. And that's not true. Christians and Jews have actually lived in what's called the West Bank since the time of the first century. Mm-hmm. And so that was surprising to me. And so I began, I, I went back home, no big deal, because I was working on my PhD. I just didn't think about these things, things at all. But that first trip began to cause me to go, hey, things aren't what I've been told. There's more going on here. So, so that's 2003. You're doing your, your PhD at this time. You finish that up, you know, a, a couple of years later, you move back from uh, Pennsylvania, back to California, you start doing ministry. 
do you, and I know that you've done a number of trips. Did you do another trip that triggered this or what was going on in that process? Yeah. So I go back, I'm I'm working in the church in Livermore, uh, California, 2006, beginning in 2006. And shortly thereafter, I had a number of students and classes I was teaching. I thought, hey guys, if you want to go see the Holy Land, I got a great way to to, to show you. Uh, This Jerusalem University College has a wonderful experience and it is, it's it's excellent. It's academic. You can have classroom uh, classroom lectures and then they take out in the field. And so the classroom lecture might be by the leading scholar from the Hebrew University on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you might go out and see the Dead Sea Scrolls and Qumran, that, that area, with this professor walking, it's just it's a phenomenal way to, to, to do the study. So I, I thought, well, I don't need a class credit, but I'll go with you. I'll kind of guide the, tra- and I'll be there at night and in the evenings to help you with the class because it, it, it's a class, it has tests and, and, and exams, but I'll help you study and prepare you for the exam and everything else and fellowship with you. And so I went on that trip there. My oldest son, Justin, went with me. And we were traveling to Bethlehem and I had been to Bethlehem five years earlier. Well, Bethlehem's four and a half miles southwest of Jerusalem, you know, pretty, pretty close to south of Jerusalem. It takes 10 minutes to get there. And I realized after a little while that we had been on the bus for 15 minutes or more. I'm thinking we should have been there by now. And so I took a group. We had about 15 people in my group, but the bus itself, I think, sat 40 or whatever. So there's another group of 25 people from other churches or groups or whatever that, that were taking this class together. And I said something, I said, how come we're not there yet? And somebody sitting across from me on the other side of the bus said, oh, we're taking one of the bypass highways. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember who this person is to this day. And I said, well, what's a bypass highway? Oh, well, it's a highway built uh, by Americans to help the Jewish people to go from the settlements to uh, Israel. And I said, well, what's a settlement? Sorry, I did not know what a settlement was. A settlement are Israeli citizens, citizens of Israel, that have built cities and they're bonafide cities. Some of them have 60,000 people, some 20,000, 30,000 cities in the West Bank. I know it's beginning in 67 when Israel took over the West Bank for military purposes and to, to, you know, for security purposes, they actually began a process of moving their own citizens into the West Bank. It's kind of like us going up to Canada and going, you know, we like this area over here and we're just going to like start building our own cities and make it, make it America mm-hmm. in the middle of Canada. Mm-hmm. And then what they did is they said, well, the problem with that was when those citizens travel from those settlements through Bethlehem to kind of get to Jerusalem or to kind of on their way to Tel Aviv to go to work, they would drive right through the West Bank. And the fact is the settlement was built on someone's stolen property. My grandfather or my uncle, that's his farmland that you, that you built your settlement on. And that's where you have clashes. The clashes would be the violence that you see often is the settlers, Israeli citizens living in the West Bank, driving through or clashing with Palestinians who lost their land to these settlers. So they built these bypass highways that are for Israelis only. In fact, there's actually two license plates, Israeli license plates and Palestinian license plates. Mm -hmm. And if you have a Palestinian license plate, you're not allowed on this road. But this road also goes through Palestinian land and cuts off farms from cities and everything else. So they're telling me about this. I'm like, okay, that doesn't sound right. And I remember going back to 2003, seeing all these big cities in the West Bank. I'm like, oh, wow, look at these great cities. And now I'm like, oh, those are Israeli citizens living in Palestinian territories. That doesn't sound right. And, and they're just going on and they're describing how they, they're building a wall. And, and as I, I look out the window, I'm seeing a wall that's being built around, around Bethlehem that wasn't there when I was there in 2003. 
And I'm like, what's the wall for? All the walls to keep Palestinians from entering into Israel and, and doing terrorist attacks and everything else. I'm like, well, that makes sense. But the problem is that Bethlehem's in the middle of the West Bank. In other words, if you're going to build a wall between the Palestinians and the Israelis or between the West Bank and Israel, you build it on the line, the boundary line. But this wall, like 80-something percent of the wall, is actually being built deep sometimes into Palestinian territories. Like it's up, the wall in Bethlehem is, is actually incredible because it's literally up against the city is, I mean, bottom, boom, right there. Like the city streets, there's the wall. And on the other side of the wall are the farmlands and the agricultural lands of the Palestinian inhabitants of Bethlehem, which they now, which means they now they can't even get out of their own city to farm their own land. And so you're having this massive economic devastation that's happening. So I'm kind of hearing all this and I'm thinking, this is not right. This, this, this doesn't make any sense. And so and this is when I had this epiphany on, on the bus on the way out of way out of Bethlehem, we're going to go travel through the wall. Uh, so we, we kind of go around the wall to get in, but we're going to go through the wall, which is a straight for four and a half mile route, uh, route to Jerusalem on the way out. And I'm sitting on the bus going, you know, I'm going to get out easily because I got an American passport. I'm Amer and I'm going to get through this wall and everybody on this bus, we're going to get out easily. But I looked out the window and I saw a 25 year old Palestinian young man who I realized it's two in the afternoon and you're not working because you have no job because economically you, there's nothing for you to do. Palestinian city was cut off from other Palestinian cities by the bypass highway. So they can't trade. They can't sell their goods in other cities. They can't work their land because it's on the other side of the wall. And I'm thinking, and I know why this is the way it is because people like me that have this view, this theology that says Israel's God's chosen people. We have to protect them at all costs have actually sponsored the oppression and, and I understand why we're doing it. We're doing it to protect Israel. And we want to get to that in a, in a little bit. But we sponsored the oppression uh, of the Palestinian people as a result. And you added that to the fact that some of these Palestinians are even Christians. And I'm having a, a crisis of faith on the bus. And I began to weep. And I began to go, wait a minute. And that's why I titled my book, These Brothers of Mine. Because Jesus says, whatever you do to these brothers of mine, you do to me. And, and I believe that's actually Genesis 12, 3 in fulfillment. And these brothers of mine in the Gospel of Matthew, as I argue in my book, are followers of Jesus Christ. And I'm like, oh, my, I have been used to bring oppression to fellow Christians, let alone Palestinian. And oppression of any group, people, people group is not good. We'll go a little bit further, further there. But uh, that, that's when this became an issue for me. And I, so I came home going, I got my PhD. I can research anything I want to research. Uh, I need to figure out what's going on here in terms of the, the, the justice issues, the issues on the land there, because theologically, I, I've been trained uh, on this topic. Yeah. And I know around this time is the time that I met you. Um, mm -hmm. It was probably around 2008, 2009, just, mm -hmm. just in that. So you, you're wrestling with this. And I remember the first time I was, I was ever exposed to this mm -hmm. was you talking about it. And just not knowing what to do with it mm -hmm. because it's one of those things right. where it's like, okay, this is different than everything else I've ever heard, especially right. think about 2008. This is very close to a post nine 11 America. Correct. We're still in the early stages of some of those wars that we're engaging in. You just got out of Iraq. We're in Afghanistan. Now everything is the Muslims fault. And so even there you hear like, well, it makes sense that the Muslims would be launching rockets into 
you know, Jerusalem, like that's what they do. <laughs> and, and, and it, it, you know, like, so when you hear about these things, it's like, yeah, that makes sense why it's happening. Right. You're coming back now and you're someone who I'm meeting. You're someone who's a pastor on staff at the church I attend at the time before I'm on staff. And you're telling other stories like, Hey, these are the things that I'm seeing. Right. And it's, it's, there's way more information than you, than you thought. And I know you pointed some resources at me that it was just like, okay, I don't know what to do with this now. Cause I know you're not a liar. <laughs> right. right. But it, it, so, so you've had these experiences, you feel called to, to do something about this now, because you, you have some insight and information that most people don't. Um, and, and you've even talked about how you believe that God has like spoken to you about this. Um, and mm-hmm. like, I, I'm even saying it, it always feels creepy when we use those terms, because right. I think phrases like that are just so abused, um, right. you know, especially by, you know, quote unquote prophets and all that. But, but, but you know, what was your experience and, in, in, you know, with those experiences over there and culminating in what you've been trained in and, and what God, you felt God was calling you to do as a pastor and advocate? Yeah. Let me, let me backtrack for one, one quick second. I make a note that what I was being told in the American media, what I was being told by American churches, what I was being told by, uh, did not square at all with what I was seeing on the ground. For example, Islamophobia had become a big issue, right? Mm-hmm. Fear of the Muslims. I was walking in Bethlehem one time and I had $800 in cash in, in the room because I had to pay. I, I went on a trip all by myself. I want to go and just get immersed. I want to meet Christian pastors and Christian leaders throughout the West Bank and hear their stories. And I, I need to know what's going on from that, from their test, their standpoint. And they put me up in a Muslim home with some Muslim guests. And a guy, a Muslim young man drove me around and was my driver and kind of hosted me. And I was told I needed to pay them uh, for, for the, the different costs and all my expenses and pay the people I was meeting, everything else. I needed to have $800. So, I'm, so my suitcase is in a room in a Muslim home. Mm-hmm. And with $800 cash in it. And I had no key to the door to lock the door to, to the room, the bedroom I was staying in. And I'm thinking, oh, I guess this doesn't, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get robbed. I'm thinking, you know, this family is super nice. No, mm-hmm. they're not going to go in and look through my suitcase. They're just not going to do that. And then I was walking through the city of Bethlehem just by myself. And, and I thought, okay, am, am I going to get, is someone going to grab me and stick me in the back? I'm literally thinking this. Are, are they going to mug me and, and take me into a back room? And, and, and what are they going to do? And I'm thinking, I, you know, I think I'm actually safer here than I am in San Francisco. Hmm. I, I literally, I'm like, I, these people are great. They love me. This, and, and it began to diffuse every, everything that was going on. In fact, I came home from that trip and my, Tony, my wife picked me up from the airport and she says, uh, how did the trip go? And I said, it was great. Uh, it was, it was everything I wanted. I interviewed tremendous leaders and scholars and professors and pastors and everything else. And I got a lot of insight. I said, there's only one problem. She says, what's that? I said, well, I can't tell anybody because what I saw, no one's going to believe me. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a significant event. But but going back even before that, that trip was I think 2010, 2009. I was teaching at a seminary in, in Nigeria. My son Jared went with me on that trip, and it was great. We had a great time, and he was staying in in, in the dorm, and he was attending some of the classes. But on this particular day, he went back to the dorm to the dorm early. And I had finished up teaching. I had two classes, three hours each and six hours of teaching. And I was going to go back to the room, get my son. And then uh, the dean was a friend of mine. And we were going to have dinner at his house on, on the campus and everything else. And I was walking back from, from lecturing. And I was having this woe is me moment. Sorry, we all do this, right? <laughs> I was thinking, you know, I mean, my, my advisors and my PhD program, they know more than I do, even about the book of Revelation. And what do I have to contribute? And, you know, uh, what am I ever going to do in this world? You know, that type of, type of thing. And I just was sorry, I was just 
first look confession, I was having this woe is me moment. So you were just being a person at this point. <laughs> yeah, you're, very, you're actually yeah. a guy. Yeah. That, that's right. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the heavens parted. I mean, literally this, how I picture John the Baptist baptizing Jesus and the heavens parting and God coming down as a dove. I, I didn't see God coming down as a dove, but I literally looked up and the heavens parted. And God spoke to me. He didn't speak audibly, but he just spoke to my heart. And he says, I specifically have called you to be a voice to the evangelical church on this issue. And at the moment he spoke with me, I literally saw my life flash before my eyes, like, like a film reel from left to right of the 30 or 40 years of my life, however old I was at the time, 40 something on years. It all it like flashed before me. And I immediately responded. He said, I called to be a voice to the evangelical church on this issue. And I immediately responded. I said, send me to Nineveh. <laughs> and what I meant by that was, I know what you're calling me to do. Mm -hmm because you're calling me to be a voice of the church. And if the church doesn't listen, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's going to hurt. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a prophetic voice of the church. If you send me to Nineveh, that's the pagans. If they listen, great. Awesome. Good news. If they don't listen, well, they're pagans. I did my job. I tried to tell you, I didn't want to be a voice of the church. And the Lord said to me, so I said, send me to Nineveh. And he said, Rob, I have specifically and uniquely equipped you to be a voice to the church on this issue. And as my life flashed before my eyes, I realized I grew up believing this stuff, the end time stuff of Hal Lindsey and Grant Jeffries and Israel. And I taught, told people that 1948 was a fulfillment of prophecy and we should expect Jesus to return by 1988 because that's been 40 years. And mm -hmm. when it didn't happen, we had to recalculate, right? I, I just believed all that stuff. And I believe the political ideology that the Jews were the good people and the Palestinians were the bad people. And I now know that's not true. There's good people and bad people on both sides of the wall. I, mm -hmm. I know Israelis and I know Palestinians and they're all really good people. And, and so uh, that began this process of going, okay, I had, I had just come back. I, I, I knew what I knew. I got to figure out what's going on here theologically and, and politically and everything else. And that began my involvement in this issue. So you start really diving in at this point, you've had your experiences, you already have your formal education. What sort of things did you find once you started studying this? Well, the first thing I found, and largely I went back to the land and I, and I met people and I've been, I've been, I've slept in Palestinian homes. I've been in Israeli families. I've had dinner with them. I've had dinner with rabbis. I've been in rabbis homes in, in Israel. I began to realize that there's really neat people on both sides of the wall. They just really are. There's moms and dads who just want to raise their kids in freedom and without fear, just like you and I want to raise our kids. The second thing I learned is that there are competing narratives, and these narratives are legitimate narratives. The Jewish narrative is legitimate. These people are, some of them are their parents or their grandparents were killed in the Holocaust. And some of them are Holocaust survivors, mm -hmm. and they live with a legitimate fear that the nations of the world want to destroy them. Iran and many of the Arab nations, and, and they're right, true. And so you have to understand the, the Israeli narrative. In fact, on some of the trips that I go on uh, now, I, I go on with a, with a group called the Telos Group. And one of the things that they do is they, they, they take you to Israelis and then they take you to Palestinians. And, they, and on one experience is they take you to the Holocaust Museum in, in Jerusalem. And they stay outside and say, we're hiring Israeli tour guides to give you a tour of the Holocaust Museum. And you're only going to hear a, a Jewish Israeli story of what the Holocaust is all about. And you have to hear that story. You, you have to understand the, the, the legitimacy of, of the Jewish narrative. 
But then you go on the other side and you see Palestinians who just want to live in peace and freedom uh, and they want to raise their families and they have no economic means of doing so. And they live under oppression because Israel is a military occupying force. Their kids might throw a rock at a tank and they end up in prison and they're tortured. And I've been in Washington, D.C., and I've met with leaders of national organizations, international organizations who've told the stories about Palestinian families that have been, the kids have been tortured and uh, they wet their beds and they're 14, 15 years old and they mm -hmm. live in fear. These are legitimate stories and you have to understand this. So there's just these competing narratives and, and these competing situations that are going on. And there's two sides to this and they actually both want peace. It's the powers that be that don't want peace because they don't, they don't gain an advantage from the peace. Uh, they, they gain an advantage from, from the status quo. So even when you're explaining this, what we're told, and this is certainly what I'm told, is that uh, these are just two people groups who have been, you know, fighting for centuries. As long as they've been in existence, they're always going to fight, and nothing's ever going to solve this problem. Right. Uh, it goes back from Isaac to Ish Isaac yeah, and Ishmael, yeah. right? They've been fighting since Isaac and Ishmael. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not true. Fundamentally not true. I was the first trip I was there, I was in Jordan in 2003. When we went on that trip, I told you about the border crossing there. And with uh, seven or eight students, I think, all together, and I'm walking through Jerash. And if you ever go to the land, Jerash is one of the great archaeological sites you need to see. Mm -hmm. It's one of the ancient Roman cities called the Decapolis. It's, it's a great site. And I hear in the distance this music. It's an ice cream truck. And I'm thinking, I recognize the sound. I, I recognize that, that song. I'm not, you, you know, Vinny, if you don't know, Vinny's a very uh, accomplished musician and I don't know music at all. And, mm -hmm. and it's not my forte. And finally I, I go, I realized what song it was. It's an ice cream truck in Jordan playing. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry <laughs> Christmas. We wish you. And I'm thinking, guys, listen to this. They're playing, we wish you a Merry Christmas. Well, I come home and I tell people that story because it was really, you should have seen what happened. And I was with two Palestinian friends, a couple that I, that I got to know very well, Karim and Romana. Uh, and I'm telling some other people about this, about this episode that's happening. And Karim and Romana are actually Jordanians. They were mm -hmm. born in Jordan, mm -hmm. but their parents are Palestinians that were forced out in 1948 when oh, Israel wow. became uh, when Israel was given the, given the land, they, they were forced out. And so they were born in Jordan, but they're Palestinians. They, they just aren't allowed to go back to their homes. And so I'm telling the story about this ice cream truck and how, how, how funny it is. And Romana looks at me, she goes, Rob, there's nothing odd about that at all. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's a Muslim country and they're playing, we wish you a Merry Christmas. Mm -hmm. She says, Rob, the Israel, the Jews, the Muslims and the Christians all lived in peace with one another for years and years and years. In fact, we celebrate each other's holidays together. There's nothing strange about a Muslim ice cream truck playing We Wish You a Merry Christmas because mm -hmm. they celebrate Christmas with the Christians. Mm -hmm. And the Christians celebrate Ramadan with the Muslims yeah. and the Jews together. And we, we live together in peace. This, this war, this conflict actually goes back to the last century. And I mean, obviously, there are times of conflict. And the most notable times of conflict are actually when the Christians began the Crusades, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we brought conflict to the land, but otherwise they lived in peace together. And so it was just like, oops, I guess I can't tell that story anymore. Because well, even, not, in, even to interject on that uh, in seminary, you know, how you could always take some uh, electives. And so they, they uh, Fuller actually has a uh, school of ministry for Islam. I forget mm. what they call the Islamic studies. And so even taking an intro to Islam, the professor lived in the Middle East for years. And he said one of his, uh, I remember this from a lecture, one of his prized possessions was getting a Christmas card um, 
like like seeing like islamic christmas cards mm-hmm. <laughs> you know because he's like yeah that's just literally something in any muslim world i think he lived in uh, was it saudi arabia or afghanistan or pakistan he, he was living somewhere over there and he's like yeah that's just like these things are over here mm-hmm. uh just kind of breaking down some of those cultural barriers that we think uh you know that right. of, of what islamic people do or do not do right just right. just even there so anyway sorry yeah. uh, so so you have this ice cream truck uh story um and uh, that's just hilarious so what if, if they weren't because now i can't listen to ice cream trucks ever uh, if we were to say though there obviously was an origination date of this conflict so when does that happen so the conflict uh goes back problems earlier so zionism zionism not christian zionism really goes back to the late 1800s they began this immigration out of europe there and there were some conflicts there uh, but nonetheless palestinians i'm sorry jews and muslims and christians were living in the land together prior to the the, the, the 18th century they, they all lived together majority of the conflict really begins in 1948 in 1948, the United Nations, led by England and, and France, decided, uh, and the United States, decided that they needed to, the old Ottoman Empire had been, had been defeated, right? So now we have this land, what are we going to do with it? Well, the European nations in the United States, they all said, the Western nations, they said, we need to have our foothold in that land because there's oil over there. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's kind of, so, hey, France, you can have Lebanon. Hey, England, you can have uh, what we call Israel or Palestine. And so they, they parceled up the land. And then the, the Jewish need for a homeland and a nationalistic identity and a place to call home where they can make their own laws just really came to the surface, obviously, as a result of World War II and the Holocaust. And so the, the, the decision was made, hey, we need to give uh, this land or a portion of this land to the Jewish people for their own sovereign state. Mm-hmm. A, 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 let them establish a Jewish democracy where they can have their own laws and their own freedom and not have to worry about things like Hitler ever happening. And that really began to spark this conflict because what happened was, you know, there's, there's a Jewish saying that's, that's often uh, out there and Christians sometimes will say it as well, a land without a people for a people without a land. Mm-hmm. So a land without a people, I mean, there was no people there for a people, the Jewish people who had no land. The problem is it's not true. The land was occupied. There were Palestinians who lived there and they'd lived there for centuries. In fact, some of the Christians who, who live there, you go to the land and, and you ask one of the Christians there, so how long has your family been Christian? Don't, don't do it. Don't ever ask them the question because their response will be going, well, somewhere between Acts chapter two and Acts chapter five. <laughs> I mean, they're converts of the early, uh, and those, they're, they're actually Jewish Yeah. because the early Christian converts were Jews who converted to Christianity. And then mm-hmm. They may be intermarried with other people. Many of the Palestinian Christians are actually Jews by blood mm-hmm. going back to the first century. So uh, what happened, however, was when the United Nations made this decree in 1948, hey, Israel, you can have this land, Palestinians, you get this land. The land of what we can now call Israel had hundreds and hundreds of Palestinian villages that were no longer Palestinian villages because they, the Israeli army came in with the United Nations support and they depopulated them. Almost as many as 500 Arab villages were depopulated in 1948, like at gunpoint. And many of those villages, the Israelis just moved into the homes. They just, they, they occupied the homes. Yeah, to, just to just to paint a picture of what this means, it's yeah. it's literally it's someone showing up to your doorstep saying, get out of this house. This is not your house anymore. That's right. And it, it's now mine. 
Mm-hmm. Now, in some cases, they, they bomb, the Air Force has bombed the villages and destroyed them. The, the, the Arabs, the Palestinians are like, well, let's go back to our home. Like, there is no home for you anymore. It, mm-hmm. The village has been destroyed. But in other cases, they, Israelis just, or Jews, they moved into the homes. Mm-hmm. And so you had, an, you had an immediate crisis of now 700 to 750,000 Palestinians who became uh, refugees. Now, the, oh, well, oh, the Palestinians were told to leave by, the, by, by their own people. Well, that's partly true. Some of the Palestinian leaders are like, hey, guys, go ahead and leave. We'll get this war going on. We'll, we'll win this war and you guys can come back. But that's not the full story. And obviously they lost the war. They were never allowed to come back. But there are now 700,000 Palestinians who became refugees. And that number now, because they've had kids and grandkids, is mm-hmm. four to five million Palestinian refugees who claim mm-hmm. Our home is, is in what's called today modern day Israel, mm-hmm. and, they, and they remain refugees. So that crisis began. So then, of course, in 67, which I alluded to earlier, uh, Israel took a preemptive strike, and Israel claims that, well, the Arab nations, Egypt and, and Jordan, they were going to attack us, so we attacked them first. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's true. It doesn't matter. But Israel said, we need the high ground for defense purposes. And since 1967, Israel has become the, uh, the occupying force of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip which means they control everything about the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. They control, you, you name it, it is controlled by Israel. Who, who goes in, who goes out, and where you, can you go here, can you go there? Checkpoints everywhere, confiscation of lands, home demolitions, it, it, it's become a, a significant problem. So you've already alluded to some of the injustices that you saw, especially on your trips and, and, and mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing. If you were to kind of just summarize that, and so, okay, well, what are these injustices? What, what is it that, uh, what's the effect of, you know, you know, half century, almost a century, you know, uh, 75-ish years of this? Like, what is that? If you start on the, on the Jewish side of the wall, you have the fact that they still live in fear of rockets coming over the wall from Gaza mm-hmm. or from Lebanon, Hamas and Hezbollah, terrorist bombings and terrorist attacks. They don't have very many of these any longer. Obviously, the wall has been partly to blame for that. Uh, partly to not to blame, but partly to um, explain why Palestinians are no longer entering into the lands and blowing them up. But there also is a movement amongst the Palestinians saying, this is not helping us. Mm-hmm. Whenever we go out and you blow somebody up, they punish everybody. We're not letting you do this any longer. Mm-hmm. So Palestinian self-containment, I'd explain that as well. But so there's a, the fact that the Jewish people are post-Holocaust and that they've lived under this oppression and that they are currently not welcomed in this land because they kick the Arabs out to take over this land and the Arab neighbors don't like this. And the refugees live in these Arab lands. Jordan has a large percentage of its population is Palestinian. Lebanon has a large percentage of refugees that remain refugees in, in Lebanon and elsewhere. So that's kind of the, partly the Jewish narrative there. And the, it's fear-based and it's legitimately fear-based. The Palestinian side is, hey, listen, who is the United Nations to say that you can give our land away to somebody else? Mm-hmm. Uh, I get the fact that you guys are saying, hey, sorry to the Jews, because what, what we allowed Hitler to do and the mm-hmm. Western states taking responsibility for that. But you don't get to make up what you did to them by taking our land from us and giving it to them. That, that doesn't make any sense. So you, land confiscation, which has been a major issue, the refugee crisis that's, that I mentioned, the presence of settlements. Settlements is the biggest issue today. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the obstacle for peace today is the fact that there are now 500 to 600,000 Israelis living in the West Bank. Hmm. So that's the problem. In other words, to solve this problem, maybe seven or eight years ago, what you'd say is, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to let Israel have a presence militarily 
in the West Bank so they, they can monitor the highlands for military purposes. We're going to give the rest of it back to the, to the Palestinians. They can have their own state. They can have their own elections and everything else. And this is what Oslo in 1993 was supposed to do. The problem now is the number of settlements has grown so hard, mm-hmm. so high. What do you do with them? Mm-hmm. You, are you going to kick out 500,000 Israelis and say, guess what? I know you've lived here for 50 years or more and your kids have lived here and your grandkids now. But sorry, this actually is Palestinian land. We should never have given it to you from the, in the beginning. You got to go find another home in Israel. That, that's almost untenable. The, these Israeli cities that, that, that are built there. Uh, so if you give that land and say, well, okay, we're going to let these people, these Jewish people stay here. Do you give land in Israel to the Palestinians and say, okay, we'll give Palestine. The reality is it's actually beyond a two-state solution. It's simply mm-hmm. those who argue for a two-state solution now are living in the past. It's simply no longer a viable option. Uh, so what you end up with um, is in the West Bank is you end up with Israelis uh, with two sets of laws. It, the Israeli settlers are actually bound by the civil laws of the state of Israel, and the Palestinians are actually bound by military laws. Mm. So when, when Palestinians do something wrong, they go to, they go to military courts. Uh, it, it, the settlers can act with impunity. If you go to a settlement, and I've been to a settlement, we've sat down with the mayor of a settlement giving us a one-hour lecture, and I had a conversation with him later on. He went on the bus with us and gave us a tour of the settlement. These settlements have parks and, and grass and lawns and pools and they're f- movie theaters and, and they're full-blown cities, self-contained. You could get a job there and never have to leave the settlement. You might work in Tel Aviv because of, of technology and that's where the jobs are at. That's fine as well. But you could actually come into these settlements and leave and never realize that you're actually in the West Bank or never even leave the settlement. Whereas right outside the settlement are Palestinians, some of who own the land that that settlement is now built on, who are now forced in, in, uh, in, in these enclaves, and they struggle for water. If you do the studies of you know, how much water does a person need, a family need or a household need to survive on, the Palestinians are given less water than, than that by Israeli government control. So what happens is Palestinians, if you ever go there, you can tell well, that's a Palestinian city and that's an Israeli city. Because on the Palestinian rooftops are black water pots, jugs, probably like several hundred gallons. And the reason for that is because they never know when Israel is going to turn the water on. So when they turn the water on, they fill those jugs up so they Mm -hmm. can have enough water to get by until its water's turned on again. My son went to the West Bank and stayed with a, a Christian organization and worked as a human rights organization for a summer there. And he stayed in a home in one of the refugee camps in Bethlehem. Mm. And they ran out of water for like two weeks at a time. And he says, dad, you have to understand, you know, this honor and shame culture. They know the water is getting down. It's a black water pot so they can have hot water too, right? Well, when it gets down to the bottom, it's only hot water left. And now they can't even run their faucet to wash off a dish because it's boiling hot water. And this is the end of the water. He says, you know how shameful it is to them to serve you dinner on a, on a paper plate? And then to tell you that you can't take a shower um, the, the home that I stayed in for the week that I was there, uh, they were showing me the, the, hey, this is where you're going to take a shower and everything else. And my host, who was an, actually an American host who, who set the whole thing up, said, hey, why don't you tell Rob why you're so excited to show him the shower? And I'm like, yeah. Why and they said, well, we haven't had water in two weeks. Oh. So, you know, just water rights, the, the freedom of movement, uh, it, it, horrific and oppressive, you know. If you do a Google search on world's largest outdoor prison, mm-hmm. the Gaza Strip comes up. Really? Uh, Gaza is an unbelievable humanitarian crisis. Over 50-something percent of the people are unemployed. 
I think it's 80 to 90% of the people in Gaza depend on outside aid for daily survival. Uh, it's, it's, and, and it's like, well, well, Israel withdrew all the settlements from Gaza and, and left it unto itself. Well, they did withdraw everything from Gaza, but they also withdrew the infrastructure that they are responsible for as the military occupying force. Uh, they don't allow the fishermen to fish on the sea uh, on the Mediterranean Sea after like I think it's uh, 12 nautical miles, and they've actually fished that whole area. There's almost no fish left there. Uh, it's the oppression is incredible and it's intense and uh, overwhelming. So that's kind of the Palestinian side of things there. And so the, the, the important thing to recognize is this: there are two narratives and even multiple narratives within the two narratives mm-hmm. that have to be legitimatize. You can't simply say, okay, the Palestinians are being oppressed. We have to overcome this. Because if you do that, you might create an imbalance for the Israelis and they're going to suffer as a result of that. If you say, no, the Jews are God's chosen people, we have to favor them. And and maybe you hold that theology and that's fine. I don't agree with it as we've discussed. But if you do that, the reality is that God can never ordain injustice, especially some of the Palestinians are Christians. I mean, that has to go somewhere. And so we have to recognize that this is a complex issue and, and with complex problems there. So I'm curious in your own uh, journey, as you've processed this out in your own experience coming up on almost 20 years now, right? Uh, right. Have, have you had to go through a bit of a um, paradigm shift where coming from that pro-Christian Zionist background, uh, were you more likely to be anti-Israeli and running towards the Palestinians and then maybe have to center yourself a little bit. Yes. What's your own process just look like as you yes. sorted this out? Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. And, and I have a story about, you know, uh, my time in, in 2003 with, in Palestine, uh, we went to a Palestinian village real quickly, went to a Palestinian village and I was, I, I was paranoid the whole time. I'm in the West Bank. I don't know what the West Bank is. I just know I'm not in Israel any longer. <laughs> and I know I'm an American, but I don't think these people care because they're Muslims and they're all going to, I, I literally was paranoid. In fact, this event, this, I was with another young man and the young man that, that was with me, it's now been 15 years or 20, almost 18 years. I met him a, a year and a half ago. He's like, Hey Rob, you remember? I'm like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, I tell the story about you and I all the time, but we were, we were walking and he was much younger. He was a college student. And he was scared. I'm thinking, okay, I can't be scared because, you know, because he's already scared. We didn't know what was going to happen. And we, long story short, we, we went down around the corner and we were looking for Lazarus's tomb, right? This, we were told it was there and whatever. And all of a sudden uh, there's, we're walking down the street and we look up and we see this door and above the door it says Lazarus's tomb. Like we found it. <laughs> and these two Palestinian guys sitting right across the street and the street's like 10 feet wide. So it's just a really narrow street. They go, do, do you want to get in? And we're like, well, yeah. Okay. I, I let you in. And he goes in the house and he gets a key and he opens the door. True story. I told this guy's name was Seth. I said, Seth, you go down. I'll wait here. Because I thought, I literally thought this. I thought if you go down and I go down and they lock the door, they're never mm-hmm. going to find us. Mm-hmm. There's no, no one's ever going to know where we are. And there's two dead Americans in Lazarus's tomb, right? Lazarus <laughs> ain't there, but we, but we are right. So he goes down and he comes back up. I go down halfway. I'm like, it's a tomb. I've seen plenty of these ancient tombs. I don't really care. Whatever. I look, I look around the, the staircase. I look at the tomb and I come back up quickly because I was scared that they were going to lock the door and lock me in. All of a sudden now, the, the guy across the, across the street goes, okay, that's, that's four shekels each, that, that's, uh, uh, or eight shekels each, uh, 16 shekels. That's $2 each. 
I had told Seth earlier on the, on, the, on the journey, I said, I don't have any money. I didn't bring any money with me because I don't trust anybody, right? Right. He says, all I have is a, I have a, I have a $20 bill. So the guy's like, okay, that's $4 basically, right? And Seth goes, all I have is a $20 bill. And I thought, oh, you're an idiot. You just lost 20 bucks because they're going to go, well, bummer for you, but you owe us yeah. four bucks. But the guy turns around and he goes, no problem, no problem. I make change. I'm like, what? He goes in the house and he's in there for five minutes. So he's looking hard mm-hmm. to find change. Mm-hmm. The other gentleman's on the, on the porch. He starts talking to us in, in the little bit of English that he spoke. I got a, I got a bow, a slingshot like David had. Look, watch. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and he said, we're having this great conversation uh, with this guy. Five minutes must have went by. And the guy comes out. Okay, here we go. I got uh, $6 in American dollars and $10 in shekels. And I'm thinking, dude, you could have lied. Mm-hmm. You could have robbed us blind. You could have lied. So yeah, I've gone through all these paradigm shifts thinking, okay, these guys aren't the bad guys. And then you go, okay, America and the Israelis, they're the bad guys because they're doing it to them. And, and we want oil and we want this present, you know, and you're like, and then you go into an Israeli home and you're like, no, they're not the bad guys either. And, and so, yeah, you do actually go through this paradigm shift of going one side's the good, one side's the bad. No, they're the bad. No, they're the good. No, guess what? They're, they're all people made in God's image. They all want to have their kids and raise them in peace and prosperity. And they can. And it's this narrative that we're selling that says they can't, that's actually perpetuating it. Well, and even there, what I'm hearing is you have the people, the the Israeli families, a Palestinian guy, but then you also have the governmental systems. Right. And so it's, it's even say these, this is the good group and this is the bad group. That's just so narrow-minded because there's, there's multiple different types of groups and people within that. So right. uh, usually complex uh, problems don't have simple solutions, right? <laughs> it's, it's, so ultimately though, someone's listening to this and they're like, Hey Rob, I, I, that's great that you had those experiences and I appreciate your compassion. However, I have a biblical conviction and, and the Bible is the thing that guides me in terms of who I need to support and whatnot. So, you know, what do you say to that person who says we have to favor the Jewish people that that's the land that God gave them. We need to be faithful to the text. Yeah. It's not an easy discussion because it's so complex and the narratives that we have held to are so deeply embedded. I mentioned to you earlier, first Peter two, nine, that you are a holy nation, a Royal priesthood of people belonging to God for God's own possession. And that stuck out for me and went, wait a minute. And we're going to talk about this in our interview with David Crump uh, coming up ne- after this episode next at the end of the week. But I began to realize, wait a minute, the, the scriptures apply this to, to the church, right? If you believe Moses, you believe me, Jesus says, and, mm-hmm. and my mother, my brother, and my sister, are those who do the will of my father who is in heaven. So I think that's the, that's the reality. Now that's not meant to say, oh, the Jewish people have been replaced by the church. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. This is the fulfillment. And in particular, the idea of, you know, everyone loves to go to Romans chapters nine through 11 as though there's your, there it is. It it proves that Israel still got, still God's chosen people. But Romans nine through 11 says that used to the, the illustration of, of the, the tree, the fig tree Mm -hmm. and says that the Jews were, were cut off because they, they rejected Christ and the followers of Jesus, whether some are Jewish or some are, are, are Gentiles were grafted into that. I know it's the same tree that you and I were grafted into. Mm -hmm. And that tree is Israel mm-hmm. and, and Jewish people today can be grafted back into that tree by confessing in Jesus, just as anybody else can be. So uh, there's theological reasons to say, no, 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 this is not a, not a, not a good reading. And I think the key with it would be that I argue in my book is that it's about Jesus folks. It's a, Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. They were fulfilled in, in him and through him. Mm-hmm. 
and like you didn't even mention Galatians three, which is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just like central to that, but Galatians three twenty eight. if you're, if you're on 20, yeah, if you're listening, yeah. And I mean, the whole chapter is of Israel. Yeah. And it's kind of making that whole argument, you right. know, talking about like, there's only one seed, uh, you know, and, and the, the antecedent of that is definitely referring back to Genesis 12. Um, but, uh, in your book, you cover a lot of that, how it, it, you know, how all these things are ultimately pointing towards Jesus, uh, all these things in the Old Testament that we see, they're pointing. So what about a, a temple? Hey, Jesus, <laughs> we got it. All right. That, that uh, one's easy, right? Yeah, Jesus yeah. said, I'm the temple. It takes yeah. care of that. Yeah. Um, how do you respond, though? You know, for, for maybe the Christian who says, no, I'm convinced that Jesus fulfilled all these things. We don't need to show a favoritism towards Israel for theological purposes. And, and the criticism might be, hey, well, you're just an anti-Semite. Yeah. Is that a legitimate claim? Uh, it can be. And you got to be careful. Anti-Semitic means, you know, well, anti-Semitism actually means something larger. But today it means uh, being against the Jewish people. The first thing to realize is that anti-Semitism is a real issue in history and predominantly an issue by the church. Mm-hmm. In other words, the church, Christians, going back to Chrysostom and the Epistle of Barnabas and uh, Martin Luther, Martin were Luther, strongly yeah. anti-Semitic. And, and so this idea, okay, Jesus is the true, uh, the Catholic Church even apologized, said, sorry for letting everyone think that you guys are responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. That's mm-hmm. not, so anti-Semitism has a strong history in the church, and it's, and you have to be careful of that. Secondly, the fact, of course, is anti-Semitism resulted in six million deaths not very long ago, uh, and the Holocaust is not some like one-off event. Uh, the Jewish, the Jewish people have suffered oppression for thousands of years. You go back to Egypt, I and mean, this is their, this is their narrative. So we have to recognize that, and we have to recognize the church's role in this. Uh, now, I just wrote a chapter for a book that actually should have come out last month. I haven't heard why it's not been published yet. Uh, and my chapter was on, was uh, John, the, the writer of the book of Revelation, anti-Semitic. Hmm. He says in Revelation 2.9 and Revelation 3.9, that the Jews are a synagogue of Satan. That sounds really anti-Semitic, doesn't it? And what I argue in that, in that chapter is that Jesus, Paul, and John are not anti-Semitic. They're Jews. Mm-hmm. And all they're doing is acting as prophets. In other words, if anti-Semitism is the criticism of Israel, then Isaiah is a major anti-Semite. But he's not anti-Semitic. He's Jewish, and he's criticizing the Jewish people for what the, for for their own behavior. And so Jesus is Jewish, and he's criticizing the Jewish people for for their behavior. Not all Jewish people. But that has to be clarified. Paul's Jewish, and so is John. They're all Jews, and so they're being prophets. What I argue in my book and in this chapter in the book is that by the end of the first century, when the Book of Revelation was written, Christianity had not made a clean break from Judaism yet. So John is. Being he's Jewish and he's criticizing the Jewish people outside in the synagogues. And he views Christianity as Judaism, as the true Judaism. And it's an in-house dispute, in other words. So the next thing to point out is that it's not anti-Semitic to criticize political Israel. And this is what David Crump will talk about in his book quite a bit. And we'll bring up in the interview coming up with him. It's not anti-American to criticize America. The fact is that any state is not perfect. And if they act imperfectly, actually it's loving to criticize them and call out their harms. In fact, one of the things I would say would be to say, to call out Israel for the oppression of the Palestinian people that they're doing is actually saying, we want you to be preserved as Israel. And if you keep doing this, Iran will build a nuclear bomb and they will attack you with it. And, and we, we, we will have a global conflict. And this is not good for Americans either because we're gonna get drawn into this war. It's, it's loving 
to speak up when somebody does something wrong and, and, and to speak into it. So we're not criticizing Jewish people because they're Jewish. We're criticizing the state of Israel for its political actions and its oppression of, of another people. And, and that's, that's a significant difference. But one that I constantly have to, to point out, hey, wait a second, be careful. Because if you tell the Palestinian story too strongly, it does immediately cause a reaction of saying, okay, I'm anti-Jewish. Mm-hmm. And that's the way of looking at it is any peaceful solution or a resolution of a conflict that favors one side, it might resolve the conflict, but it's only going to create another conflict. Mm-hmm. So we resolved the Holocaust and said, okay, Israel, you can have a land, but we just create another conflict by giving them land that belonged to somebody else. Yeah. Um, you're still doing work in this subject. You didn't, you haven't stopped. You've propelled right. forward. Uh, what are, are you associated with any organizations? Or are you doing it by yourself or what does that look like? Yeah. So obviously the blog, the podcast like this, uh, speaking into the issues and trying to bring awareness to the people, as, as I said, you know, I think the Lord called me in, when I was in Nigeria to be a voice of the evangelical church. Uh, so I work with uh, an organization called NIMI, the Network of Evangelicals for the Middle East. And you can look at it and we'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, NIMI.network uh, has resources uh, to bring awareness of what's going on. I work with an organization called the Telos Group. I'm planning on leading a trip over there next year in May or June. Of 22. Uh, of 22, hoping that COVID relaxes and, and dies down, which I don't think anyone's still sure of as well. And on a trip like that, what we do is we see the sites, we see the the, the, the birthplace of Jesus, we see Capernaum and Nazareth and all these sites, but we also sp- ta- stop and look at the present situation. We, we meet with rabbis and, hey, tell us your story. We meet with Israelis, we meet with Palestinians, Muslims, Christians, and, and otherwise, and we hear the, the, the current conflict. One of the things that on that trip I mentioned earlier when I was interviewing pastors and Christian leaders, I was over there by myself. One of the things I said, to them, I said, I said, if you have something that you want me to go back to the United States and, and tell the people, uh, these are Palestinian Christians. I said, what do, you, what do you want me to say? And he said, tell them we exist. Hmm. A number of people said this, tell them we exist. He said, the fact is that, that they come into their buses and they get off their tour bus and they go see the, the birthplace of Jesus or they go see the, the childhood home of Jesus or they go to Capernaum and see Peter's house. And here we're, we have a church right next door here hmm. in Nazareth and they don't come in to see us. So t- tell them that, that, that we exist. So during the pandemic, we've been doing webinars, um, things of that nature, advocating for peace and peaceful solutions there as well. So, okay. And then I know that when we started having this conversation, like it was, it was one of those moments where I just kind of had to sit back and say, Oh, uh, and then I started, uh, you know, just exploring it more on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that, you know, there were some resources that you recommended to me and, and I went through, what are, what are some of the resources now that you recommend to folks that they go through? Yeah. So one of the things that I think you should start with is a book by Elias Shakur called blood brothers. Mm-hmm. He's a Israeli, but he's actually Palestinian. So he's one of the, so 20% of modern day Israelis are Palestinians. So when I mentioned the, 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 the confiscation of lands and the 700,000 refugees, some of the Palestinians stayed and were allowed to stay and became Israeli citizens. So they're Arab Israelis. Mm-hmm. Now they don't have full equal rights of Jewish Israelis because Israel claims to be a Jewish democracy. And to have a Jewish democracy, you have to be Jewish, you know, and so there's a lot of complexities there. But uh, Elias Shakur tells his story about how his village was depopulated Mm -hmm. in 1948. He was eight years old. It was a Christian village and his family was Christians and everything else. And and what happened there 
Uh, so it's, and it's they a had, he had like a history. I remember if I remember correctly, like he had a lineage that goes back. <laughs> like I'm sure he does. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure he does. Yeah. And uh, there. So I think I would recommend a book by Gary Burge that I, that I looked into next um, called whose land, whose promise. Mm-hmm. And we'll probably have Gary to come on the podcast soon. I actually have interviewed Gary a couple of years ago. So if you want to look at old podcast episodes, you can hear Gary. This book talks about the current situation and it's old. So it's, it's outdated now. It's, it's, 15 years outdated, but it still gives you an insight into some of the injustices, injustices that the Palestinians are experiencing, land confiscations, home demolitions, water rights, uh, restriction of movement, uh, the incursion of settlements, et cetera. If you want to get into the theology, because I know that's one of the issues, like, wait a minute, I can go see these things and understand these things, but I still believe that Genesis 12, 3 says that God's chosen people, the Jewish people, what do I do with that? Then they could read my book, The Blood Brothers. I'd, I'd highly recommend that they go to just these brothers Vision. of mine, not blood brothers. Yeah. <laughs> so, did I say that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, these brothers. Thank you. I don't even know the name of my own book. Uh, <laughs> these brothers of mine. Uh, there's a, there's an organization called just vision and we'll put the link in the show notes, JustVision.org, which is actually made up of, of Israelis, Americans, and Palestinians all working together to make videos and movies, documentaries of what's happening there. And so uh, wonderful people, wonderful videos. You should watch a video called my neighborhood. If you want to know what's going on in the, in, in the current issue of Sheikh Jarrah, and it's going to come down pretty soon, I think the Israeli Supreme Court is going to decide sometime in August on the Palestinian citizens of Sheikh Jarrah. You should watch the video, the documentary, My Neighborhood, made by Jews, Palestinians, Americans, and others. Wonderful. And they have a lot of videos on there. And then I think I would tell people, go find people in your neighborhood and in your community, in your cities that are Jews and talk with them and hear their stories. And then go find Arabs and even Palestinians if you can. And if you're up in the Bay Area, they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. Large contingency. If you're in LA, they're everywhere. If you're uh, in Arizona, they are there. And hear their stories. And don't try to argue with them or just, just t- hey, tell me your story and, and let me hear it. And it's going to rock your world. You're not going to know what to do with it. You're going to hear conflicting stories. You're going to hear paradigm busting stories. You're going to go, that's not what I know, because I know from my newscast or I know from my sources, this is the truth. But hear people that have lived in the land or, or have family members that live in the land and go, okay, maybe my newscasts or my resources are trying to perpetuate a narrative for their own purposes, because this is not what these people, and I've heard five people now, and they've all told me similar stories. And then if you want to travel and go see the land of Jesus, and I'm going to lead a trip, and we're going to talk about Jesus in the Bible and the kingdom of God and what was the message of Jesus. And then we're going to wrestle with taking the gospel of the kingdom and applying it to a modern conflict. And we're going to see it. Then uh, let, the, let me know. Use the contact me tab on the Determined Truth website or email me if you, if you have my email address, et cetera. So go and find out for yourself. Yeah. Well, that's a ton of great yeah. stuff. This is a lot of information uh, to digest. And hopefully we'll set up uh, our talk with David uh, in a great way. And I'm sure we'll revisit it because this is something right. that you're obviously yeah. passionate about. And this relates to other things. So I'm sure that once we also, you know, maybe start going through some uh, texts and some passages in the Bible, this stuff will come up as well. So quite often. Yeah. Quite, yeah Thank yeah. you. And, and that's ultimately where we come from is like, we're driven from the text. Right? right. And even you've, you've, and I want to emphasize this again, you've been so experience based tonight in terms of, Hey, this is what I have seen. And you can't discount that, but you don't make your decisions based off 
emotions and what you're experiencing, you are also 100% driven from the text. You're saying this is to be faithful to the text. This is what I think it means that we're supposed to do not only in terms of how we view modern day Israel versus, uh, you know, old Testament Israel versus how do we love our neighbor versus what does the church look like and who are my brothers? Uh, and just what is an ethic of peacekeeping look like? And what does it mean to, uh, you know, are you blessed if you're a peacemaker? I think Jesus talks about that. (laughs) <laughs> I think you're called a son of God. That's a kind of a good thing. So it's important. Uh, so anyway, lots of stuff there. Come check us out again in the next episode. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you too. So drop Rob a note and you could contact him and let us know uh, how this is affecting you. It'd be good uh, to hear some of those thoughts. We'll see you next time though. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.